Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with Vancouver's plan to densify the city, build more homes, especially duplexes, triplexes, and multiplexes, six-unit buildings on a single-family lot. Now, this is a two-sided argument here. Some people think there are some problems going too far with this, and others think we need to densify even more. i got Councillor Christine Boyle standing by. Let's go back to the last election here. Ian, uh, candidate Ian Cromwell, who was a guest on my show here earlier, he, he says, look, we have to densify. Have a listen to what he told me. I'm sure there are going to be some people who will who will only see the downsides to a, a denser and healthier city. But I think there are a lot of people who are going to welcome having more people when they walk down the street. OK, more people in these ne- neighborhoods. Let's densify on the other side. You know, you hear a lot of worry and concern about densification. Listen to this call to our buzz line. Stop bringing people in here. The system, the roads can't handle it. The infrastructure is not there. These these new buildings, they're not going to be they're not going to be affordable. So it's a myth, complete fallacy. All right, let's discuss it now with my guest, Vancouver City Councillor Christine Boyle. Councillor, thanks for coming on again. Thanks, thanks for having me on, Mike. You bet. Thanks for doing it. Okay, let's talk about this plan that was presented to council this week. Now, this is a plan from staff that's going up for consultations, right? Uh, it is, yeah. So the presentation to council yesterday was just a an update on the information that they're going out to hear from the public on, and then we'll bring the changes back to council. Okay, so let's talk about some of these uh, density recommendations in here. It's up to uh, six units on one single-family lot now, right? Yes, that's the proposal. So right now... Um, right now, about 36% of new residential square footage, what's what's being torn down and replaced is still single-family homes. That means in a lot of our residential neighbourhoods, including mine in East Van, we're seeing older, smaller homes be torn down and they're being replaced with just larger, more expensive new homes. Instead, the proposal is to allow um, four-plexes or six-plexes on those lots so more families can call those neighbourhoods home. Right. And so for people who are wondering what this would look like, like if you take a look at some of the drawings and what a building like that would look like, it's sort of it would sort of look a little bit like the traditional detached single family home. But you'd have up to six units in there, right? Yeah, with a with a couple um, interesting priorities, I think one is making more of the units more accessible. So allowing a a ground floor unit that's right at the ground floor, not having to dig into a basement and pour all that concrete actually saves a lot of uh, cost in the project. It also uh, reduces the carbon emissions. The basement and all that concrete um, is bad for carbon emissions. And then having ground floor units allows us in a fourplex or a sixplex to have at least a couple of those units be ground-oriented, wheelchair-accessible units, which we badly need more of across the city. There's also a priority in the proposal to have more family-sized units in here. So you're right, they look, um, they're still designed to look like uh, single homes in a lot of ways, um, with more units. You know, 
I fall on the side of I think that this is an important move to make um, and that it doesn't go far enough. I think we should right. do what staff are proposing here, um, but it's not going to solve our housing issues. Uh, it, it is a very, very modest step. You know, for all the folks we hear from who say they want gentle density, this is sort of the gentlest form of density possible. Again, we should do it, but we should do it quickly and move on to the greater challenges we have, which are building secure rental housing, non-market housing in every neighborhood of the city as well. Right. You've been calling for more densification for a long time. And when we take a look at this plan for a sixplex unit, six units on one single family zone lot, you're saying that that doesn't go far enough. You think they should allow more units or you should be able to allow uh, you should be allowed to build higher both of those, yeah, there are some really uh, um, interesting and beautiful examples, actually, of going a bit taller and um, with less site coverage. So a, a narrower, taller building that still allows more green space. One of the challenges around adding more density is our uh, sewer system and, and rain runoff. We all know how much rain we get here. That's heavy on our minds this week. So um, allowing uh, more of the of the lot to still be garden and yard and going taller instead helps to reduce those utilities issues while allowing more people to live there. And, and to the um, caller you, uh, you played who doesn't want more people, you know, I, I will continue to challenge that all of us rely on having a city that has a mix of people and incomes who our healthcare workers, who are grocery store clerks and baristas, who are transit operators. We want folks to live in our neighborhood uh, to support all of us, um, to support the services we rely on, to be part of a healthy and vibrant neighborhood. Right. What about, okay, that's an interesting point you just made there about pressures on the municipal kind of sewer system. You know, a lot of people have raised that concern. Another concern that you hear a lot is parking. So if you allow six units or if you'd have it your way, we'd have potentially even more units on one single lot. What about parking? Would you not have Carmageddon out there? Yeah, it's a totally fair question and one I think about a lot. So um, one option, and this is included in what staff are going out to the public on it is to let the market decide, you know, is car storage, is parking on these lots the best use of the land? And if somebody redeveloping their property decides to put in parking, great. If they decide that's not the best use of that land, um, that that's the flexibility that, that could be provided. Um, right. What I see, uh, and I, you know, I can't call myself a young person anymore, but... Um, uh, young-ish, more young families in the city um, don't have cars. They use car shares. They have e-bikes. They're relying on rapid transit. So one of the goals of this program is to create more family-sized housing so that young families can stay in Vancouver uh, and more of those families are looking for housing um, and aren't relying on cars. That's a shift that we're seeing in Vancouver. It's a shift we're going to need to see more of because it's true our roads are already um, pretty congested and we're not building more roads in the city of Vancouver. So we need to find better ways for people to get around. Those are going to right. mean more people getting around without cars. And it means we don't need two parking spots per uh, per house. Um, we can let people make that choice on their own. 
We're following it closely, Counselor. Thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Happy to come on anytime. Thanks. Okay, thank you. Vancouver City Councillor Christine Boyle there on the plan outlined at City Hall yesterday. All right, let's keep talking housing density here now. This plan in front of Vancouver City Hall yesterday allow up to six units, three-story buildings on a single-family lot. Let's check in with Peter Waldkirch here now. Peter is a Vancouver-based lawyer, housing advocate, Abundant Housing Vancouver. Hey, Peter. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Your thoughts on this plan? Well, look, I think it's fine for what it is. It's better to do this than to not do this. But realistically, if we really cared at all about the housing crisis that is really choking the life out of the city, that's driving people and workers out of the city, if we cared about responding to the climate crisis and building better, more complete neighborhoods where people didn't need to drive around just to get a liter of milk, if we cared about those things, this is the sort of thing we should have been doing 20 or 30 years ago. For 2023, this is just not far enough. It's just not enough to make a dent in our housing crisis. So but I you think do more. You think they should be allowed to build even higher or build even more than six, six housing units on one lot? Yes, absolutely. I think that, you know, housing is just not about how big a certain building is. It's about the people. It's about the people who are going to live in those homes. And right now, people are being driven out of the city because we have a severe housing shortage. Because right now in Vancouver, 52% of the land is reserved for low-density housing, and only 15% of the dwelling units are are on that land. So we reserve most of the land for only a very, very few amount of people. And of course, those are the richest people. This isn't a a fair way of building a city. It's not an equitable way of building a city. It's not a way that will allow workers who actually live and work in the city to live in the city and have homes here. That is a road to freezing the city in amber. And that's not the future I want to see for Vancouver. You know, I, I'm really disappointed because I think Vancouver and British Columbia used to be a society that looked to the future, that built for the future. And now we just seem so timid and cowardly sure. about looking towards the future. And I'm so disappointed by that. Okay, phone me on the open line in this one and tell me what you think. More density, is this the answer? If you live in one of these single-family neighborhoods, how would you feel about this if a three, three-story, three six-unit building went up across the street from your next door? Uh, 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Gail in Vancouver. Hi, Gail, go ahead. Hi. Well, I live in, a, in the... Vancouver area that has single family. We have a fourplex now, two doors down from us, that have seven cars. Oh. And they park all in front of the houses. We are, we're lucky we park in the back, but every night you could not park in front of our house because of these cars that are there. And it's they have spots in the back, but nobody parks in the back. The, the laneway houses there, they're, the the how the parking for it you'd have to have a smart car to fit in it for one thing and the other thing is when they open up those garages they're just loaded with their their personal stuff oh, okay so, Gail, thank- you know the parking yeah. at the pl- the fire trucks can't even get down our street okay gail thank you for that all right peter what do you say to this argument well look uh, i think ultimately we have to ask what we care more about 
people or cars? Because I would bet those people are a good addition to her neighborhood. But also, I've got to point out that city uh, has a plan to address these sorts of problems by charging a small fee for using public land to store your vehicle. It was about $40 a year. Unfortunately, that was uh, defeated. But that's the sort of incentive we need if we want people to use their parking garages when they are lucky enough to own them or their back lanes. We need to create an incentive for people to do so because the reality is all that public land that we give away for free to people just to store their vehicles, that's a tremendous public asset. And I think we need to sort of rationalize it by making people pay a little bit of money for that in order to uh, you know, okay. make a smart decision about where to store their vehicle. Brian and Coquitlam. Hi, Brian. Go ahead. Hey, Mike. Hey, Mike. Hi. I'd rather see a three-story building that supports four units because we don't have enough big enough units for complete families. Instead of a whole bunch of small, tiny units for one person or two people, we have a shortage of family units that have three or four bedrooms. So yeah. I'm okay for the size of the building, but maybe we can pack in less suites into the building so they're bigger suites to accommodate okay. families. That, that's why I, I I think you raise a really good point, and the same the same thought has occurred to a lot of people. Like, if you allow, Peter, you do a three-story building with six units, are these units not going to be like, tiny? Like, maybe it's good for a retired couple or a, sing- a couple with or a single person or a couple with no yeah, kids, but, man, if you got kids... Go ahead. Definitely. We need, look, and look, we do need more one bedroom places in the city, too. But we absolutely need plenty more family unit places, too. I know this very well. I was looking for a two or three bedroom place for my wife a while ago. It's impossible in this city. But the reality is, if you want bigger inside units, we need to allow bigger outside buildings, right? There's a relationship between how big a building is and how big the things are on the inside. And so that's my main critique with this current proposal. It's limiting buildings to 1.0 FSR, which is a technical term, but that basically just means it controls how much floor space there's allowed to be. And with the current sort of on a floor, so for example, a fourplex on a about a, a typical lot in Vancouver, each home would only be about 1,000 square feet. That's not big yeah. enough, I think, for families. So we need to make up the buildings to make them a bit bigger so that those units can be a bit bigger for families on the inside. Okay, we're following it closely, Peter. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much. Have a great day. All right. Are you in the market for a used car? I'll tell you what, this used vehicle market, there's some big changes going on here. Now, you've got to follow the bouncing ball on this one. It wasn't that long ago vehicle prices were going up, up, and away. Now, new car inventory is starting to catch up. Used vehicle demand going down. Yeah, all of a sudden, your used car salesman is uh, willing to do a little wheeling and dealing here. Now, I've got the motor mouth himself, Zach Spencer, standing by here to discuss. First, have a listen to this report from ABC News. Just a few months ago, we saw that it was a seller's market. You could get big money for selling your car. Now it's flipped and prices are dropping and it's happening fast and furious. We have seen dealers negotiate on cars that a year ago, six months ago, they weren't even entertaining negotiations. And the age of the car will make a big difference. Edmund says newer used cars are down just 5%. Cars five years or older, a 15% drop or more. Okay, so some of those numbers out of the United States, taking a look at Black Book Canada here. Yeah, it's showing some uh, buying opportunities here for sellers here in Canada, too. Let's check in with Zach Spencer now, automotive journalist. I definitely recommend his YouTube channel, Motor Mouth on YouTube. Quarter million subscribers there. Zach, thanks a lot for coming on today. No problem, Mike. Good to be here. 
Okay, Zach, you get kind of whiplash following this thing here now because we've done segments on the show here not that long ago about prices for used vehicles going up. Now, now it's going the other direction. Is that right? It is. It is, but it's very slow. I, okay. I think that uh, the number one takeaway here is that um, the prices will slowly come down, but it is going to be slow. And one of the reasons that's different between Canada and the United States is that vehicles that are uh, low mileage, um, recently, uh, you know, two, three years old, that are in nice condition, they don't often make it to the marketplace. Often they get sold um, to other dealers um, or they get sent down to the United States. <clears throat> The problem we have with our, our low dollar is that uh, American um, wholesalers can come up here and buy vehicles, uh, and they really help push the price up. It's still mm-hmm. a deal for them to take it down across the border and sell the vehicle down there, and that's happening a lot. It takes quite a few of our vehicles out of the marketplace and helps keep the prices up. So the Black Book, Canadian Black Book that you referenced, they send an email out every week, and I read it. And what we're seeing are the wholesale prices coming down about half a percent a week, some vehicles more, some vehicles less. The ones that are taking it on the chin right now are uh, SUVs. Cars are holding up, obviously, because of high fuel prices. But just looking, this is what's important to people. The wholesale price is one thing. That's what dealers pay for cars at auction, dealer pays at uh, trade, and dealer pays another dealer to buy a car. What, what people really need to know about is what is the retail price. And the retail prices are still remaining quite sticky. Okay, so... Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, the average transaction price for a used car was right around $24,000, okay? Right. Now, even this week, the average transaction price is $36,500, okay? That's a huge increase in prices. So, yes, the peak might have been a month or two ago, uh, but it's going to have to take a long time for that to slowly come down. So the other thing is, if you go to a dealer's lot now, there's very few cars. They're going to start to get the inventories building up of new. Supply constraints are starting to ease in the new market. And as dealers start to get more cars, that's good news. Uh, the used market, the problem is these dealers buy these cars uh, typically at the wholesale market and they've bought them at those elevated prices I just mentioned from a couple of years ago. They're not going to drop their price too much, okay? Uh, It's going to take a while for this to filter through the system, so every time they go to replenish those vehicles in the the, uh, wholesale market, they're going to pay less, and that will eventually trickle its way into uh, the economy. Okay, I like the way you describe it there. Those prices are kind of sticky. It doesn't seem to be too sticky when it's going up, but then when it's coming down, yeah, it's a little slower to to filter down to the consumer with a, a lower price. But So we're starting to see prices come down a little bit. Therefore, okay, here's the question, Zach. Like, If you are in the market for a used vehicle, would you be better off to maybe wait a little while, buy later this year, to wait for prices to come down a bit more? Yeah, I would say that you're probably the best bet is to wait. I think we're going to see uh, the real bite of these interest rates starting to take effect now that, you know, the real run up in interest rates happened in the spring and summer. And then we headed into the holiday season. And I'm sure a lot of people were just like, okay, we'll just put our head down. We'll get through the holidays and we'll spend what we need to spend. Now it's a new year. Everybody's reevaluating what they want to spend their money on. And there's going to be people who are really rethinking buying a car. And I think that the bite of the high interest rate, 
States and the, the Bank of Canada and the Fed in the U.S. Might not, might not be done with raising interest rates, we're going to see this really having effect because I read an article just uh, the other day, the average interest rate for a new vehicle, these are U.S. numbers, but they correlate to Canada, is around 9%. The average interest rate for a used car is 13%. So if you go to Scotiabank, BMO, TD or whatever, and you say, I want to buy a $25,000 used Honda Civic, uh, they don't charge you the bank rate. They charge you a much higher interest rate. That is really going to bite the used car market, and people are going to reevaluate. And if they're sitting on their hands, then dealers have inventory. They've got to bring the prices down to attract buyers. And um, same thing with new. I think there's going to be a lot of people who ordered, you know, we've heard about all these shortages, right? Everybody yeah. or people who ordered a car and they said, oh, it's going to take a year, you know, 18 months to get your car. The phone's going to ring and they're going to say, oh, Mr. Uh, uh, Smith, we've got your, um, your, your cars in, uh, but the interest rate's now 9%. And you're like, I can't, I can't afford that. Uh, okay, sell it to somebody else. I'll keep the car I've got. I think some of that's going to happen, too. Okay, speaking to Zach Spencer, Motor Mouth on YouTube. Hey, okay, Zach, you touched on some of the different vehicle models that are maybe seeing a little softening in price more than others. I, I, so would you say like a full-size SUV or a pickup truck, those are sort of going down a bit more because of the price of gas? Is that right? Well, it's interesting because on the new side... One of the biggest increases in sales as a percentage were the full-size SUVs. So think Escalades, Tahoes, Suburbans, those kinds of vehicles. Had an incredibly strong 2022 in the new market, right? Mm. And a big reason for that is the biggest seller of those vehicles is General Motors. And they had all new trucks last year. So the new Escalade, the new, uh, like they, and they finally started to get some inventory. So those things sold incredibly well. But what's happening in the used market is the prices of the used ones is actually dropping the fastest. Now, these are percentages, they're small percentages, but the wholesale prices seem to be showing that SUVs are falling faster than cars. And that's probably a function of fuel prices. How about EVs? Are those still tough to get? Still expensive? But the problem with EVs is that new, um, well, the the problem with EVs is there's not a lot of use because, you know, a lot of EVs have only come in the marketplace in the last few years. So um, the waiting list for a new EV is really quite long in high demand uh, vehicles. Uh, Tesla dropped their price by 20 to 25 percent, depending on the model overnight, which is going to really affect the used values of Teslas. So anybody that bought a Tesla in the last year or two at these ridiculously elevated prices are now have a vehicle that's worth 20 percent overnight. And that is not good for brand loyalty. People are going to be disappointed that that happened. And, um, you know, the, so there might be some deals in Teslas out there. Uh, so, and the good news is there's more of those than any other brand. All right, we continue talking about new and used vehicle sales with my guest, Zach Spencer, Motormouth on YouTube, 604-280-9898 is the number, star 9898 on your cell. Brian in Coquitlam. Hi, Brian, go ahead. Hey, Mike. Wait in one day. Um, in November, when I had my car into uh, the dealership to do the oil change, they had an EV on spot, and I tested the wires to see if I could get it. And they were willing to offer me $22,000 for my 2021 Mazda 3. And with the rebate from the provincial and the federal government, I could have got that EV for about uh, $15,000 after the rebate. 
uh, it wasn't the right car for me, so I ended up turning down the deal. But they were going to offer me 22000 for a 2021 Mazda with 50,000 K on. Zach, what do you think of that? Yeah, and they would have flipped it and put it on the lot for twenty six. Yeah, <laughs> there's just no uh, there's no used inventory out there, and that's what I'm saying is that a lot of the really good cars get scooped out of the market before they even get to dealerships. They get sent sometimes to the United States dealers. You know, it's 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 a it's a bare bones market out there. If you go to any car lot right now, there's very few cars out there, and used is one area where dealers can still make some money. So yeah. even though these wholesale numbers are starting to come down and the bite of interest rates is taking effect, it is going to take a while that's for sure yeah nikki in vancouver hi nikki go ahead cool. um about four years ago i used to buy used cars and, and there was the expenses to repairing and so on so i decided to lease my current vehicle at 1.69 so the lease is going to be over this may it has very low kilometers because of covid it wasn't driven i went into the lot and find out what they were offering and they said at uh, the, the interest rate now would be at 6.99 my question to zach was just some advice whether it's best to just keep my vehicle and buy it out. It's only 20000 they said I would have to pay out. Um, just a brand new, very low kilometers and buy the extended warranty. Or what do you advise I do? I'm kind of confused at this point. Mm. Zach, what do you think? Well, the good news is you have a lease contract. So they can't change the price on you and say, oh, by the way, that used vehicle is now 5000 more. You have it in writing. I'm going to pay 20000 or whatever the buyout number is. They buy the car you have. Um, because if you are going to wade into the marketplace, you're going to be wading in uh, with everybody else. You have an opportunity to buy a car at a set price. At, and when the values were lower, you're getting that car for thousands and thousands and thousands below the market value right now. If you wanted to sell it privately afterwards, you could cash that check and you're going to get more money than you paid for it. Please buy the car. If you're worried about repairs, get the extended warranty. Okay, some good, good advice there, I think. Thank you for the call. I, someone once told me, Zach, you should never lease a new car, that it's a bad deal. What do you think of that advice? Well, we could do a whole show on that, Mike. I disagree with that 100%. Leasing is a wonderful way for people to, um, I call it the three-year test drive, right? Mm. So you get a car and you drive it for three years, and if it's been nothing but trouble, you hand it back and you give them the keys and you say, that was fun. Or if the car has been great, as the case is with this previous caller, um, you can buy the remainder of the car out. I call it the three-year test drive. If the car is in a bad accident and is repaired, any accelerated depreciation because the car has been in a bad accident is on the shoulders of the lease company, not on you. So if the car is now worth five or 6000 less because of an accident, you hand the car back and they absorb that depreciation. There's a lot of good okay. things about leasing, yeah. Okay, that's very interesting. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Bernard in Vancouver. Hi, Bernard. Go ahead. Hey, uh, had a quick question. Um, the, uh, the hybrids for the CRVs um, are only available on the top line. So I was just looking for something that's uh, a little bit more um, uh, maintenance-free and whatnot. So is EV the way to go, or should we still stick with hybrid? Um, and because the CRVs are so pricey now for hybrids only, uh, what what are your suggestions? Zach. Well, I, um, the the CRV hybrid is great technology. You're right; it's only the top touring trim, and it's fifty thousand dollars, which is ridiculous. Go to the go to the Toyota store and get a Rav Four hybrid. Um, uh, it's thirty four thousand dollars. That's sixteen thousand dollars less 
than the uh, Honda. Um, it's not as sexy and new, but it's still a wonderful product that will give you years of trouble-free driving. So that is, that is, in my opinion, one of the best cars on the road. The problem is you can't get one. Because yeah. <laughs> there's, a long, there's a long waiting list. So what I would do is uh, go down and test drive one, see if you like it, and then put your name and wait for it to come in. That's the that's the best advice. Yeah, I really like the Rav Four too. I I, I drove a, a rental model uh, last year, a Rav Four, and I, I quite enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, to get a hybrid Rav Four, I've heard some stories about people who are waiting a long time to get. Like, yeah. what what's the waiting times like out there for a vehicle like that? Uh, well, we've hear, we're hearing stories from our viewers uh, year plus. Uh, year but plus, as I mentioned, yeah. as interest rates, I just in the break I checked uh, Honda. Uh, is 7.99% interest, and Toyota is 7.7% interest. I mean, these are huge jumps in interest rates, huge costs added to the vehicle. So there's going to be some people, maybe you ordered a RAV4 hybrid, who just can't stomach that price increase, not the price of the car, the price of the the money, uh, that might uh, pass on that. Uh, and, and there could be some deals out there, you know, and you can put your name on several uh, dealerships. You don't have to just go to the one near you. You can spread the love around and put your name on <laughs> with a bunch and, and see which one comes in first. Squeeze in one more call. Richard in Langley. Hi, Richard. Go ahead. Hello. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, my question is, I just bought a car two weeks ago. And uh, is it possible to return that car within 30 days and rebuy a car was it new? Was it new or used? Used. A used vehicle. Zach, can he return it? We got thirty seconds here. Well, you can trade it in on the next model, but you're um, you, you and that you would need to do that on another car in order to get around the tax implications. Uh, but there's no return policy, especially on a used car. There might be some dealers have a seven day uh, love it or leave it kind of return policy, but for the most part, that's now your car. But if you find a deal on another one, you could trade it in for sure and pay the difference in the car, and then you need to do that to avoid paying the tax again. That's the that's the main thing. Zach, it was great to have you on here today. Thanks for coming on. Well, Mike, I have one request. Sure. Next time I'm on, can you yep. play the Mike Smith intro with Rush? That's my favorite. With That's Rush. the one I always like. Yeah, I want that one. Absolutely. Okay. You, you got it. No problem. All right. No okay. problem. Talk later. Okay, here we go now with Kent Institution in Agassiz. This is the only maximum security jail in British Columbia. So if it's maximum security, how were prisoners able to smuggle in drugs and cell phones and weapons into the jail? They found all this stuff in a recent search of the jail they did a prison lockdown and they did a huge search over several days now they found lots of stuff drugs cell phones cell phone chargers there's weapons in there there's lots of stuff that goes on in bc prisons did you hear about the pigeon that was delivering crystal meth to a jail <laughs> this, sto- this story went around the world went kind of viral after it happened here in british columbia yeah a pigeon wearing a tiny backpack loaded with crystal meth, flying into a prison yard. I've got Alan Mullen standing by. He's a former guard at Kent Institution. Have a listen to this report here first from Global News. In my career, I've been around for almost 13 years, and 
I have never seen a, a live bird fly a package into any institution or heard of that. It happened December 29th, says John Randall. In the courtyard, an outdoor area within the confines of the prison walls, officers spotted a pigeon and a package it was carrying. It was a small um, fabric, uh, almost like a backpack, essentially, tied to the bird. Um, and inside that uh, pack was, was the, the drugs. The bird was let go inside its package set to be 30 grams of crystal meth. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Alan Mullen. Alan is a former prison guard. He worked for 10 years at Kent Institution in Agassiz. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Alan, thanks a lot for coming on today. My pleasure, Mike. Good morning. Okay, good morning to you. So, Alan, before I ask you about Kent Institution and the weapons, drugs, and cell phones that were discovered there, let's talk about the backpack on the on the pigeon here. So you had a long career as, as a prison guard. Have you ever seen anything like that, a bird being used to smuggle no. smuggle drugs into a jail? No, never. I mean, that, that story, I, I couldn't help but laugh because, you know, obviously through my career we would see throwovers, more so in the Abbotsford Mission area, not time in, in Agassiz. You know, people pulling up to the outside of the institution, throwing stuff over. Uh, you know, more recently, obviously, drones are, are becoming more of an issue. But with a pigeon flying in with a backpack, I mean, that's I, I've never seen or heard of anything like that anywhere in B.C. or anywhere in the world, for that matter. It's, it's, <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of a crazy story, really. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of, I don't know, it does make you laugh in a way, but still, I mean, it just shows you how inventive some prisoners can be. I mean, you must have seen some pretty, pretty crazy stuff over 10 years. Yeah, yeah, I, I uh, almost on a daily basis, there was always some new thing that you, you thought you'd seen everything, and then you, you see something else. I mean, it's uh, it's never a dull moment, especially at a, at a federal maximum security penitentiary. Right. So let's talk a little bit about that Kent Institution in Agassiz. This is the only maximum security federal jail in B.C. When did you work there? I worked there from um, early 2008 to 2018. Right. What, what was it? So that's a long time. So what's it like in there? What's it like inside a maximum security jail? Well, I mean, it's it's quite like uh, what you would probably imagine. I mean, obviously, it's it's depicted a little bit uh, differently on on TV and movies. But I mean, it's it's you know, it's very controlled in a max. It's it, inmate movement is very controlled, uh, especially at Kent. I mean, they used to be out a lot in the in the outdoor field. They lost that privilege, you know, sort of uh, two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, because. You know, there was there was too many issues uh, and problems and fights and that kind of stuff. So uh, inmate movement control is basically the, the number one security function in that institution. So it's very difficult for different populations to mix. And it's also very difficult for that reason, you know, for a bird to drop off a package for an inmate to be in a specific area at a specific time because it's very, very controlled. Yeah, I mean, you imagine this whenever you see sort of TV specials or movies showing like maximum security jails, you have you just picture the guards inside these plexiglass booths sort of letting prisoners go through automatic barred gates and stuff like super high security. Right. So then you start to wonder, okay, if this is maximum security. How do you get drugs and cell phones and weapons smuggled into a maximum security jail? So this was a search, a 10-day-long search of Kent Institution that turned up this stuff valued at more than $100,000. What do you think of that? 
Yeah, well, so this was an exceptional search. And just for, for your listeners, uh, I mean, there's regular searches on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. There are routine searches. But the Corrections and Conditional Release Act uh, has this uh, component called an exceptional search where the institutional head has reasonable grounds to believe that because of contraband, there's you know a substantial risk to the safety and security of the institution. So they, they already had information. They already had reasonable grounds to believe that there was contraband there. Um, so this was was a long search. I, I mean, I've done you know a lot of exceptional searches, and it's a big deal. Every nook and cranny, every cell, uh, you know, the gym, everywhere is searched and and searched again type thing. So they already knew there was something going on here, but I've never seen. I've seen this amount of drugs, but the cell phones is the big thing for me. This is, I've never seen anything like that in my tenure. And I, and I don't think any institution has ever come up with that amount of cell phones. That's the biggest concern for me. Yeah, cell phones. Like, why is that a concern? Is that because prisoners could be doing, who knows, maybe they could still be committing crimes via cell phone while they're in jail. Well, there's a number of issues with cell phones. First of all, you have a direct communication to the outside. That can have uh, a risk to public safety. You can be, you know, conducting your business from the inside the institution. It can have an effect on the lower mainland, you know, gang conflict. You can be arranging for drugs to come in. You can be arranging deals. But the other thing, too, is you need to remember when an inmate is going to an appointment outside or going to outside court or, you know, these other reasons to leave the institution, they don't have access to a phone. And if it's a medical appointment, they don't know that they're going until the morning that they're going. And the reason for that is the safety and security of that escort. So if they've got a cell phone and then an officer comes to their door and says, you're going to the doctor this morning, okay, I'm just going to hop in the shower and get on my phone and, you know, arrange for something to happen during that escort. Oh. It, the, the cell phones, the cell phones is, the, is the single biggest threat, not only to the institutional safety and security, but in my opinion, public safety as well. Oh, you mean like they could maybe even try to... A, a engineer and escape with an accomplice if they know they're going out of the prison walls for a day. Absolutely. There's strict yeah. protocols in place for, for those escorts, and, and that's part of the reason they don't have access to a phone on the morning of that uh, of that escort. So if they have a cell phone, uh, anything can happen. I mean, and you got to remember, like we've said, these are maximum security federal inmates from all over the country. Uh, they're, they're not in there because, you know, they, they stole a chocolate bar. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, speaking to Alan Mullen, he's a former prison guard. Ten years he worked at Kent Institution in Agassiz. And we're talking about the drugs, weapons, and cell phones that were discovered there in a recent search of this maximum security jail. So we talked about the cell phones, talking about the, the drugs that were discovered, Alan. So they found uh, cannabis, crystal meth, ecstasy, unidentified pills according to the release from the Canadian Correctional Service of Canada, because that could be just about anything, contraband tobacco, <laughs> you know, I guess, I mean, you know, in Shawshank Redemption, I remember they used to get, like, uh, cigarettes in, in a jail, but what about all these other drugs, man? How do those get in there? Yeah, well, I mean, again, it's 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 quite a lot. I mean, the institutional value of that is is estimated at about $103,000, so we're not talking about just a few a few items here. I mean, there's there's strict protocols in place, uh, but there's always going to be 
nothing's ever perfect. There's always going to be a certain amount of drugs in, in institutions. There's always going to be weapons because they can literally make weapons out of anything. You know, they've got things in place at the visitor security. They've got x-ray machines, ion scanners, drug dogs. You know, it's got a big security intelligence department. Uh, but, you know, drugs come into institutions a number of different ways. Like I said, throwovers, drones. It can come in through visits. You know, we do... Uh, you know, in any every institution, we do screen visitors that are coming into institutions. But again, unless you've got reasonable grounds to believe, you know, there's only so much you can do with regards to searching those those visitors. You know, uh, you can't strip search them. You can if you have reasonable grounds to believe. But again, that's very invasive. So a certain amount does come in through visits. A certain amount does come in through admissions and discharge when inmates are coming in and out of the institution. Um, but this amount, uh, you know, I'm reminded that just recently there was a story about allegedly, nothing has been, been tested or proven in court, but allegedly a nurse at this very institution uh, has been accused or investigated for uh, trafficking drugs within the institution uh, through the, the, the healthcare. Um, this amount of drugs, like, I, I just want to say, our you know, correctional officers that work for CSC are second to none and were recognized around the world and go all over the world, uh, you know, to, to teach and train. So I'm not taking anything away from these folks. And I worked there for a long time and I know a lot of people that work there, but nothing is ever perfect. When I worked there in 2012, I recall in one of the units that I managed, uh, we, we actually walked a correctional officer off the property for trafficking drugs inside the institution. Wow. No system is perfect. Uh, no, no, at no time can you say, look, at, there's, there's never going to be a bad apple. Um, yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what the story is or the investigation with this, with this nurse. Like I said, it's, it's alleged, but yeah. at no time things happen, and, and we have to be cognizant of that. But this amount, like 10, 10 cell phones, I could count on one hand and still have fingers left over uh, how many times mm. we found one cell phone, let alone 10. So, okay. To me, to me, that's there's a bigger issue here, and it's not just visits or, or A and D. All right, continuing my conversation with Alan Mullen, former maximum security prison guard at Kent Institution in Agassiz, the discovery of weapons, cell phones, and drugs at the prison. The release from the Correctional Service of Canada on this story, Alan, it is intriguing because it says that. The discovery of weapons there at Kent Institution, including included some cutting weapons, cutting weapons, which you, you assume are is a are knives. Uh, six of those discovered, but that could be like a like a shiv or whatever that's made inside the prison, could it not? Yeah, the fact that they that they included that in the release of the contraband that was that was found, uh, I would suggest that cutting weapons would be more like box cutters. Um, or, or mm. you know, items that, yes, could be used as a weapon, but also could be used to make more weapons. Um, there's always, there's always, you know, homemade weapons in, in any institution. That's, that's just a fact of life. I mean, these, these guys uh, can make weapons literally out of anything, and I've seen pretty much uh, out of anything. What so have you seen? What are, we, what, are, what are some of the sort of made, homemade weapons you've seen in there? I've seen homemade weapons out of plastic, like a plastic bottle, obviously, you know, a tin can, so they can't have cans anymore, out of a toothbrush, a pen, um, like you could name any household item uh, or any item. I've seen it made out of soap, 
Um, <laughs> like it's it's just it's crazy the stuff that that they can make weapons out of. Um, but the fact that that CSC has listed six cutting weapons as opposed to homemade weapons that that to me would more say like an exacto knife or a, or a you know um, a box cutter that they could yes use as a weapon but also uh, make other weapons out of. Okay, like when you're running a large maximum security jail, this is a complex operation, there are a large number of prisoners there. Like you described earlier, you know, I guess you have to expect that stuff is going to find its way in there by hook or by crook, like one way or one way or another. So there's always going to be a little spillage or breakage here, and stuff will get smuggled inside of prison walls. I mean, that's been going on ever since there have been prisons, I guess, but... When you take a look at the volume of items that were found here, cell phones, weapons, drugs, as you described earlier, like, does that, that just seems like too much, right? So it just got two minutes left here, Alan. Do you think they need tough, tighter security there? Look, I, I, I think I know that the security measures there, and I think it's as tight as, as, as the Corrections and Conditional Release Act allows it to be. You, you, you got to remember that the, the legislation only allows uh, a certain amount of restriction placed on inmates. And, and that's the problem. And, and I think Kent and CSA actually does a really good job uh, with the safety and security, with, you know, even if a prisoner was having a, a private family visit, there's so many things in place. You're never going to stop at all. Uh, you know, and when, when you have a staff member doing it, it's yeah. way more difficult to detect. But believe me when I say it will be detected. Uh, you know, at some point it will be detected. And, you know, that one I spoke about earlier on back in 2012, uh, that individual served three years in prison himself uh, on the other side of the walls. So, I mean, it is such a dangerous, inmate behavior is precarious under the best conditions. When you introduce drugs um, and and all this other stuff, I mean, you are putting so many lives at, at risk, both inmates and staff. So, I mean, you you will get caught. Like, let's let's get that straight. You will get caught. Alan, it's a pleasure to have you on here to talk about it today. Thanks a lot for coming on. Pleasure as always, Mike. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.